The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as the notes of the song ring through our ears as we contemplate the words, we ask that you would do the work, just as Seth was praying earlier, by the power of your Holy Spirit to move us, Lord, along. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the instruction in it, and that you show to be a God that, that judges. So, Lord, as there is definitely judgment in our passage today, may you do a work in our lives of helping us to divide right from wrong, to be devoted followers of yours, seekers of righteousness, ones that would pursue Christ in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please have a seat, everybody. As was our scripture reading, we will be continuing in the book of Mark. The workplace environment can reveal a great deal about the person that's represented by their their desk area, by what they have there. I remember sometime, not, not too far in the past, Seth was describing his office and his desk space and how there were some pictures of his family, there's some scripture verses there, which are reflective upon things that he values, things that he invests time into and expects fruit from, where he's fruitful. Like I said, his, his family and his spiritual growth and how he helps aid others in their spiritual growth. These are fruitful areas. This, of course, isn't representative of all the decorations that we might find in a workplace environment. In my old squadron, in the scheduling office, there's a, there was a decoration that would sit on a, a desk. as a small box, very attractive little box, and on it is a, a silver toggle switch like you might find inside of a cockpit. And so if you're walking through the office, you just give the switch a flip, and it starts this electrical, mechanical sequence of events where now the box opens and a little arm pokes out and flips the switch back to the other position, retracts, and the box closes again. It's quite useless. It's even marketed that way. It's called the useless box. But still, you can't help but switching that switch. And it reminds me of another place I was at near recently on the guard base. I was at the communications squadron, and in their office, I was waiting at the help window. And I looked up on the wall, and there was a glass display case. And similar to the useless box, there's another box about the same shape inside this glass display case, and there was a little blinking light that was blinking on and off. So I read the placard, and it said, the internet Still working if the light is blinking. Now, this box has nothing to do with the internet. It's just a joke. But still, it's prominently displayed there. And 
It gets a smile if you read it and you take it in. You realize, here's the comm squadron. They're supposed to help me get connected to the internet, and the box is working if it's blinking. It's useless. It's a useless box. And as I consider where we are today in our passage, Jesus is going up to a fig tree. And a fig tree is supposed to produce figs. But what does he find? He finds a fig tree that just has leaves and no figs. It is a useless fig tree. A useless fig tree. And Mark records this scene for us as as Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And it's relatively early in spring when this is happening. But he's describing this tree that has no fruit. Therefore, it's deemed useless by Jesus. And Jesus even uses his miraculous power over nature to condemn the tree, to condemn this tree for being fruitless. Isn't it telling that Jesus expects fruitfulness? It's a telling characteristic of our Lord. This expectation is not necessarily for the fig tree, for it's not in fruiting season, but rather it's for Israel. This expectation is for Israel, which is represented by a fig tree in Scripture. The nation of Israel was entrusted with this very important job of being able to facilitate proper worship of the one true God through the temple system and to allow all nations to be able to come and worship rightly there in Jerusalem. So what's Jesus preeminently interested in? He's interested in the right worship of God. Jesus is willing and ready to exercise judgment over those who prove to be useless, useless in carrying out their charge. And this is where we can err as well, church. Even in a special set-aside building, or maybe even especially in a special set-aside building such as this, where we come together to worship. We are just as prone to gut out those things that are, are most important to facilitate good and proper worship. And what we leave behind is just an appearance, just an appearance of wholeness. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and it was completely changed into something contrary to this end. Where did these pr- practitioners of Judaism go wrong? They became fruitless. They became useless, and they received condemnation, condemnation that they deserved. I suspect that this was a process, just as it's a process with us. We add another activity into our lives, and with that added activity, all of a sudden we have to make a cut somewhere. Well, we're going to make the cut. Well, we're going to make the cut in our, our time set aside for Bible reading. Or, no, let's just shorten our time of prayer. And it's a process. And then next thing you know, we think, well, it actually takes a lot of time to go hang out with other believers. Maybe I'll curtail my involvement in the church. And then we morph. We morph into a hollow shell of something that we once were. We're no longer devoted as we were. We're no longer spiritually vibrant as we once were. We maintain that outward appearance of a, 
of a person that is religiously devoted, but inwardly, we're not fooling God. We've become useless to our end. And maybe you are honest enough to admit this. This may be where you are currently, right now. Maybe you're honest enough to admit that, but maybe you're not. Whether or not you are able to admit slipping into something as I just described, the truth of our passage deals directly with uselessness. As we study this passage together, it's my hope that you will see plainly that you need to turn, turn from useless pursuits. Turn from useless pursuits and allow the fruit of Christ's righteousness to be yielded in you. Let's look to God's word together to see how we can be instructed in this, to turn from useless pursuits and instead allow the fruit of Christ's righteousness to be yielded in us. We're going to begin with the lesson of the fruitless fig tree. That's the first section we'll take a look at. It's verses 12 through 14. The fruitless fig tree. In verse 12, we read, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus had just had a triumphal entry the day before into Jerusalem on that previous day. And then after that, he went back to Bethany where he had retreated for the night to spend time with his disciples and his friends. And now the following morning, he's headed back to Jerusalem. And he has an opportunity that's before him to instruct his disciples. I don't want you to overlook that this is an opportunity. Jesus has an opportunity to instruct his disciples Seth mentioned how Jesus had gone and he had surveyed what was going on in the temple previously. Now Jesus knows what he's about to do. Jesus was hungry, the word says, and he was interested in finding fruit. So what is it that's there before him? In verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. A fig tree in leaf. Jesus sees this fig tree in leaf, and it's the time of Passover. Passover occurs in the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar and doesn't exactly match up with our calendar. So I could say March or April, and it would be either one just depending on how the lunar cycle works. All that to say it's early in springtime, okay? This fig tree is in leaf, and it's early in springtime. It's not the season for figs. That explains what's recorded for us next in the latter half of verse 13, where it says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It was not the season for figs. It was too early in the year. Jesus knew this, okay? Caleb and I, we grow fruit for a living, And everyone that lives here in the valley has a a relatively good understanding of the working of the orchards and when they come into leaf and how long it takes to eventually produce fruit. Him and I work in Portland, and I don't know how many times we get asked, so are you guys picking? And it could be December, it could be January, it could be May, it doesn't matter. Well, if you're not picking, what, what are you doing? There's no understanding. Jesus did not have a lack of understanding of what was going on here. 
he had grown up in an agricultural-centered world. You'll hear various explanations of why Jesus was looking for figs, but the explanation that seems most fitting is that he is setting up this real-life parable right before the eyes of his disciples to teach them something, to instruct, enacted right before them. Because remember, they're about to go back to Jerusalem where he had just spent the day before surveying what was going on in the temple. Jesus is about to bring judgment. He's about to bring judgment upon the er errant practices going on inside the temple. Throughout Scripture, as I mentioned in the introduction, Israel is referred to as a fig tree. As a fig tree, sometimes as a vineyard. This week we're looking at a fig tree. In two weeks we're going to look at Israel as a vineyard. But with today's passage... What does Jesus do with this figurative Israel before going into the temple? In verse 14, it says, and he said to it, may no one, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He condemns this tree. He pronounces this judgment upon it. He condemns it because it's useless. There's no fruit there. It's a fruitless fig tree, and for him, he says, it's useless. No one is going to eat of it again. And Mark records that he he said this audibly. His disciples were there, and the disciples heard it. His disciples heard it, verse 14 says. This wasn't in silence that Jesus made this proclamation. It was out loud so that his disciples would hear it and that they would remember it. Does this bother you at all when you consider this judgment that Jesus makes on a fig tree? Here it is. It's not even the season for figs. He goes to it. It's fruitless. Jesus condemns it. Doesn't it seem like it's not fitting in the character of the Lord to do such a thing? Yeah. If we're honest with ourselves, we'd say, I'm not really understanding this judgment. How could he be so callous. But the Lord is interested in fruitfulness. And I mentioned that Israel is being referred to as a fig tree. When you think of a fig tree, it's a system. It's a designed by God system. What are fig trees supposed to do? Produce figs. That's their job. This fig tree wasn't in a place where it was productive. And it's casting forward what Jesus is going to be doing, condemning Israel. They had a job. They had to carry out the proper worship of the one true God through Judaism, through the worship of God at the temple. And, And they're not doing that. There are a number of Old Testament prophecies that we're going to look at today. This first one that we're going to take a a look at is Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8, 8 through 13. And it's going to describe what happens when a system is corrupted. When a system gets corrupted, the prophet Jeremiah makes this declaration. Jeremiah 8, 8 through 13. 
How can you say, Jeremiah writes, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because from the, east, or from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Verse 13, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Here's this Old Testament prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. And here's Jesus making this declaration about this fig tree. There are no figs. It's to pass away. The leaves are to be withered. And I want you to see clearly, church, that Jesus is declaring authoritatively with his full judgment on the fruitless fig tree that it is not useful anymore. We don't have every perspective in every gospel, but when you put them together, if you want Jesus to have more of a a lamenting or a weeping heart for what he's about to do, Luke records that. He talks about when Jesus was going into Jerusalem and, and observing it, that he, he wept over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. Here, Mark is, is kind of slim and trim in the way it's presented, and, and we don't get that in this picture. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus wept. We follow Jesus, Jesus who forgives, and we know him as the forgiver of our sins. And he can do that because he paid the penalty with his own blood. He paid the price. However, that forgiveness does not extend to those who reject him. For those who refuse to turn away from sin and who refuse to accept Christ, they will have no fruit and they will receive condemnation, eternally binding judgment. This judgment that Jesus is proclaiming outside of the city of Jerusalem and outside the temple is to be ringing in the disciples' ears. And it's to be ringing in our ears as we make the transition into the city and into the temple, as we go alongside with Jesus into the temple courts. The faithless in the temple, as we are about to see, will receive similar condemnation. Let's look now at the next point Faithless in the temple, verses 15 through 19. In the beginning portion of verse 15, the faithless in the temple, and they came to Jerusalem. I'm just going to briefly stop there because this is the pattern of the Passion Week where Jesus is going out and coming back in again. 
And this is the pattern that he follows leading up to his crucifixion. As you come upon Jerusalem, if you've ever been there, and some of us have, the remaining section of the Temple Mount is very prominent. So in AD 70, the temple that we're reading about today was destroyed, but there is still the built-up area and some of the the, um, retaining walls that have been built up again after that time frame. So anytime you approach Jerusalem, it's, it's big, it's large. The Temple Mount is prominent. And this is a very busy time of year in, in Jerusalem, in Jesus' time. And everyone is going to the temple. It's Passover time. The city is alive with pilgrims coming to worship. And, and it's here where they're supposed to be going to worship God. That's where the, the worship system that God had commanded in his word was to be carried out. So now Jesus is there and he enters the temple in verse 15. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus goes on this zealous cleansing of the temple. He's driving out those who are selling and those who are buying. This is a huge area on the top of the Temple Mount. Roughly 30 acres is the the whole complex. It's hard to fathom that Jesus was so authoritative that somehow he is able to take over the space, the the court of the Gentiles, which was the largest area on the perimeter around the the temple center, and, and do this cleansing work. Authoritative. He's, he's sending these people out, driving them away, God's word says. It's hard to fathom how he's actually able to do that other than to realize he's, he's carrying authority with him, which is right because we know him as God. All authority is vested in him. Now he's, he's driving out these buyers and these sellers. And if you were a pilgrim, traveling to worship in Jesus' day, you would have found it actually as kind of a convenience to have animals that you could purchase there instead of having to haul along with you a sacrificial animal. Why can't you just get that when I get to the temple? So there was some convenience. I don't want you to think it was all um, just taking advantage of people, although there was a lot of corruption in this system. In fact, a lot of scholars say that if you showed up with an animal from outside, it usually wouldn't pass inspection. But if you were to make your purchase inside the temple, that's going to be good enough. And then you could take it in for sacrifice. So there was some corruption there. And similar to sacrificial animals was also the temple tax. When Jews came, they were supposed to pay a temple tax every year. And so that needed to be changed to the proper currency. So there were money changers there as well in the court of the Gentiles in order to go through that trade. And it wasn't uh, for a lack of profit. There was extra money taken, a cut for those who were bringing other currencies to change. So can you picture this scene? This is what's going on in the temple. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And instead you have almost this huge, bizarre marketplace type environment. And what goes on in marketplaces? A lot of noise. Typically, if you've ever been to a, a, a packed marketplace, 
There's people trying to buy and sell and deals being made. People are getting upset because they realize they're taking, getting taken advantage of. Not a very contemplative area. Not really a place for prayer. So Jesus is cleaning this out. He's overturning the tables and forcefully driving out those who are carrying on this practice because it's not what the temple was for. And then in verse 16, he said, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I mentioned how large the temple was, and it sits on the eastern edge of Jerusalem. So if you were trying to get to the Mount of Olives, or if you were on the north trying to get to the south, well, people found out after a while, you know what, I could just walk through the temple area. I can just carry my, my items if I'm a if I'm someone who's buying or selling, I can just carry them through and go, go on my way. Church, you have to realize that the temple was meant to be a destination for worship. It wasn't just a thoroughfare. So there was this other aspect of what Jesus was doing. He's stopping people who are just trying to go through, common individuals, merchants, and commoners who are using the temple not like it was supposed to be used. They're using it for just a walkway. Again, adding to the din of noise there, reducing its value as a place of worship. And Jesus flatly stops them from doing so. They are making it useless as a place of worship. To see if this was talked about in the past, look over at Malachi if you'd like. I'll read it. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The prophet Malachi writes, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings into righteousness to the Lord. Then... Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in in former years. The prophet Malachi, as we just read, describes this picture for us almost perfectly. Jesus is there in his temple. I love that part. And he is refining the sons of Levi so that proper worship could be carried out. Jesus doesn't remain silent. This aggressive action speaks boldly, and it allows him a voice in it as well. And we get to to see that. Not only is he taking action, but he is speaking and instructing. In verse 17... We see what Jesus is instructing as we continue in the passage. 
And he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Of the accounts given in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is Mark who completes this quotation. And he's the one that makes a pretty big deal about saying a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. Mark's audience is primarily to Gentile believers. So this is an important distinction that Mark is making sure his audience receives. I think this is the last major prophet we're going to look at, but Isaiah 56 mentions how important Judaism is to foreigners and to those who are outside of the people of Israel. In Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. This is an amazing provision that God has set this up for not only Israel, but for foreigners. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring my holy mountain, I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The prophet is speaking to the all nations peace of those who will be gathered in together to be followers of God. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who don't have Jewish heritage, we are direct beneficiaries of this provision of God's love for all nations, for all people. We are privileged to be a part of God's plan. And don't mistake, this is part of God's plan. Jesus condemns those that are present when he speaks because it is not the house of prayer for all nations that it's supposed to be. In verse 17, the latter half, it says, but you have made it a house or a den of robbers. Not a house of prayer, but a den of robbers. They are supposed to be gathered in the temple to pray and to worship God. Jesus says, so far from the intent of this place, you have completely flipped it around. It is no longer a quiet place of prayer, a place filled with joy. Quite the opposite. Now it is a den of robbers, a place where those who need to come and, and be able to engage in worship don't even have a place. They are crowded out by all the buying and selling that's going on. They're drowned out by the noise of the marketplace. Those whom they are supposed to be able to go and entrust with leading them in worship are actually taking advantage of them. Let me ask, how does this judgment land on your heart now? So we said earlier, 
when Jesus made his proclamation about the, the fruitless fig tree, it didn't settle real well with us. But now when we take it forward and we see this overlaid on top of the temple and Jesus is making a proclamation and a judgment there, how does the judgment sound now? How does it sound to us? Because like the temple, we, we are designed to be the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's temple. We are to be useful. We are to be fruitful. And we are to be that way where God has us. So I'd ask, if you were to investigate your life and realize, okay, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to be useful and fruitful. Are you doing that? Are you being useful to God? Are you being fruitful and faithful? These are good things to consider, church. And so I'm going to take us through a series of of investigations. I'll lead with myself. I'm currently going through a bit of a struggle as I'm beginning to transition away from taking my paycheck, my primary form of pay from the orchard and the farm, and shifting that over to the airline industry. It makes me wonder, like, where am I supposed to be investing my time? How am I supposed to be faithful currently in this time of transition? And that's a challenge for me. It's something that's frequently going through my mind, and it's a distraction. But I want to be faithful, and I want to be fruitful where God has me. But I'm in a transition, so I struggle with that. Do I stay firmly planted where I'm at? Do I start investing in where I'm going? There are a handful of 17-year-olds here among us who are nearing a time of transition in their lives. So ever on their minds is probably, where am I going to go to school? What's life going to be like when I'm no longer in my parents' home? What is it going to mean to exercise my faith apart from the church that I've called my church home for the last eight, nine years? Caleb, a little less for you. Those are questions that you're going to have to wrestle through. And start to think, what is this going to mean in another year or two? There are many here that spend a great deal of time in the home, tending to little children. Are you being faithful in that place where God has you? You are entrusted with instructing your kids in the ways of the Lord. Do you find it easier to put that off and say, I'll I'll talk to them about that later? and busy yourself with something else, something that you would rather do? Those are things that we should be asking. Ask the question, am I being faithful? Am I being fruitful? Am I being useful where God has me currently? Focusing our attention back to the text and what's surrounding it here, what do you think those in charge of the temple thought of Jesus' revisionary acts that he was carrying out? Verse 18 tells us exactly what they were thinking. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You could say they wanted none of Jesus' revisions. 
They saw no place for them because they were in positions of power and influence. And if the people decided to go a different way, they were about to lose out on their positions of power and influence. Everything that they had built up was going to crumble if things changed. But what they did not perceive was that the biggest change that was coming was in the ushering in of a new covenant. Jesus was there to usher in a brand new covenant. The one that they were seething over was going to do far more change than just driving out buyers and sellers, than proclaiming that this is to be a house of prayer. He was going to give his life as a sacrifice for many. He was going to give his life as a perfect ransom for all who put their faith in him. And upon his death, the old covenant was going to be undone. And what happens? What does Matthew's gospel record when Jesus died upon the cross in the Holy of Holies? The curtain was torn in two, signifying the new covenant has come and the old covenant has been fulfilled fully in Christ. He's our Savior. He's the one that allows us to live in a fruitful manner as he gives the Holy Spirit to those who put their faith in him. They weren't seeing this, but that's what was happening all around them. The the world was changing and they didn't even recognize it. After Jesus was there, evening comes, verse 19. Evening came and they went out of the city. So after this mighty work was accomplished, the hatred of those in charge is just is oozing out of them and Jesus goes back out of the city once again. Most likely back to Bethany. It's not stated here. How would you make sense of all that happened if you were walking with Jesus out of the city as maybe Thomas or Peter and considering what just happened? Jesus was hungry this morning. He cursed the fig tree. Then he goes into the temple and just like destroys the place. Looking for fruit on a, on a tree, that was pretty senseless because there's no fruit this time of year. And then he knows what happens in the temple. People are there buying and selling. And yet, obviously, he wasn't very happy with that. And he just completely sent everyone out. Like, has he lost his mind? What is he trying to accomplish? Or do they think, no, he's justified. He did everything right. They're probably torn and wondering, like, where is this going to go? What's going to happen tomorrow? And so, when it's evaluated in its totality, hopefully what's coming to their mind is, he is interested in faithfulness. Jesus is in- interested in fruitfulness for things to work as they've been designed to work. So we have to ask ourselves, well, well then what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be faithful? The faithful, as it turns out, are known by prayer. Our last point, the faithful in prayer, verses 20 through 25. Here we are the next morning, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered 
away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus' proclamation from the day before resulted in the fig tree being withered down to its roots. Out in the orchard, we see the trees die, but they don't dry that fast. They usually get sick, take some time, eventually the leaves fall off, and then we're, we're pretty certain that tree's not coming back again. Jesus worked a miracle. And his disciples heard it, remember? That was recorded for us. They heard what Jesus said. And this proclamation came true. What does that mean about the proclamation made about the temple? What does that mean about other proclamations that Jesus has made? This is without a doubt an attention getter. Jesus, therefore, takes this moment to instruct. He takes time now to instruct his disciples. Verses 22 and 23. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Church, did you consider the proclamation that Jesus made about the fig tree to be prayer when he uttered it? It's not the kind of prayer we really think about, is it? But he goes right into this instruction on prayer and faith. Jesus made the statement in full faith in God, faith in God. Faith is not to be in Israel. Faith is not to be in the temple. Jesus had faith in God. How does one demonstrate faith in God? Jesus continues his instruction in verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. We are to demonstrate our faith in God by praying. By praying. I appreciate D.A. Carson. He's a scholar and an author. He, he writes about this, this section in Mark, and this is what he says. Quote, Jesus was thinking God's thoughts after him and willing his Father's will. That sort of prayer, if asked in faith, will always be answered, for it's praying that God's will may be done. End quote. With that kind of praying comes a certain level of activity on our part, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? If we want to pray God's will, that means we have to know God and know him well enough that we can say, I am praying according to God's will. We have to get to know God. And to get to know someone, you spend time with them. You spend a lot of time with them. It's the best way to know someone is to spend time with them. And in this case, spending time with God means spending time in prayer and spending time reading his word. Jesus' instructions continue in verse 25. And he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father 
also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is a continuation of of the Lord's instruction on prayer. This passage is a goldmine of instruction on praying. I've never met a Christian who has said, I'm perfectly satisfied with my prayer life. And I gather most of you probably would say the same thing. So it's good to be able to come to a passage like this and say, what is God telling us about prayer? The main point of our whole passage today, sisters and brothers, is that we would turn from useless pursuits and allow the righteousness of Christ to be yielded in us, to be fruitful because we are, we are walking side by side with Christ. And the only way to do that is to take in God's instruction. And here he is saying, you're going to be known by your prayer, by the way you pray. So how do we categorize what is found here? There is a number of instructions, and one scholar, William Barclay, has three useful categories for this group of verses that we've been working through that'll help us, I think, work through this prayer section fairly well. These three are our prayer must be the prayer of faith. Our prayer must be a prayer of expectation. And our prayer must be the prayer of charity. So how does this work out? First, our prayer must be the prayer of faith. That means we have to actually believe that we can take our problems to God, to the Lord. A good question to ask then is, can I take this to God? And can I I ask him to help me with it? This is what it means to have faith in God. If you don't think that God can actually help you with the problem that you have, you don't have faith in God. Or, can I ask God to help me with this? That's a good question because then you have to weigh it against what you know of God's will. You would not be wise to ask God to help you rob a bank, for instance, to take something to extremes. Okay, that's an easy one. Why? Because there's clear commandments in Scripture that says, thou shalt not steal. Okay? So if there's a clear commandment in Scripture and you are trying to ask God to help you do something that's against that, that would be an improper way of praying. But again, it goes back to, well, we have to know what's in God's Word. We have to know what, who God is. We have to get to know Him so we can pray accordingly. Second, our prayer must be a prayer of expectation. To expect that God will actually do what it is we are asking him to do in prayer. Currently, I'm praying for a joyful celebration of a healthy birth of my my nephew or niece in September. That's a prayer of expectation. I am praying a prayer of expectation that my children will walk faithfully with the Lord. I am also praying a prayer of expectation that my wife's three-year struggle with her digestive system is is nearing an end. Prayers of expectation. What prayers are you offering as prayers of expectation? Do you pray that way? Remember, we don't want to be useless. We want to be fruitful. 
And to be fruitful, we need to pray. Pray expectantly. And this third category, the final category that might help us work through this section is our prayers must be prayers of charity. And this is where the focus on forgiveness in Jesus' instruction comes, comes to pass and where it's so vital. We are to be people who, who freely forgive because we've been freely forgiven. That's where we can be at a position of charity when we pray. We have committed sins, all of us. We are sinners. The only way we can be made whole is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. When we know that, when we know we've been forgiven by our faith in Christ, that frees us to pray prayers of charity. But that also means our prayers can be hindered if we're harboring bitterness, if we are unwilling to forgive. So this is another good, good place to ask a question. Are you harboring any bitterness? If you are, then your prayers will not be, your prayers will not be offered from a position of charity. If we will not forgive, then our heart will be unable to, to be in a place of intimacy with God the way he wants us to be. Because there's hardness there. There's a, a place that we are not allowing him to penetrate. And that's going to have an impact on our relationship and it's going to cause our prayers to be inept, ineffective. It's like trying to start a campfire on the coast range in like the month of January in a downpour with a steel and a flint. Our prayers are going to be hampered, to say the least. So those three principles, again, are our prayers are to be prayers of faith, prayers of expectation, and prayers of charity. I want to grow in this area, and I know many of you do as well. And I'm thankful that Jesus spent time carefully instructing his disciples, and now us, on this vitally important part of our lives, on prayer, and that we show our faith by the way we pray. He was zealous for his house to be a house of prayer, a prayer for all nations. He used the withered fig tree he used that withered fig tree as a jumping off point into further instruction on prayer. In church, prayer is the great equalizer in the Christian faith. It's the great equalizer. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be young or old, American or Irish. You just have to be faithful in prayer where God has you. You, could, you can name any classification you want, and the great equalizer in the Christian faith is going to be your prayer life. That's the, that's the way you're going to know if you are showing that you're faithful where God has you. Whether you're sick in a hospital bed or you're conquering the top of a mountain. It's your prayer life that's going to make a difference. As we consider the, the transition, if you will, from last week and the triumphal entry of Jesus making into, into Jerusalem, that which Seth took us through, and this week where now Jesus comes back and there's this cleansing of the temple, it may seem like two pictures of Jesus that just don't go together. 
but they actually go together perfectly. Jesus is fulfilling every prophecy that's written about him. He's ushering in a new kingdom. This is what Mark has been preparing us for through his writing. The central focus of the whole book is Jesus. The central focus of the whole Bible is Jesus. And the picture given to us in these past two weeks is a good reminder that there are blessings and cursings that come along in God's plan. Those who follow God's plan, summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, you are going to have blessings. But those who would turn away from the truth or be separated from what God says and deny God's sovereignty and attempt to live life only for personal gain, there's going to be cursing. We had plain pictures presented to us today in the passage that resulted in cursing. We had the fruitless fig tree and then the temple that was not being used the way God had wanted it to be used. It had been gutted of its primary use and was no no longer called a house of prayer. And because of that, because of the rampant misuse, both pictures brought about condemnation, cursing. We can never forget that blessing of God's forgiveness is not separated from the reality of judgment. Paul writes in Romans 11, verses 21 through 22, if God did not spare the natural branch branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off the kindness and the severity of God is directly predicated on where you stand in relationship to Jesus. It's how you relate to him. It's how you relate to Jesus, whether you are fruitless or exceedingly fruitful. We are to turn away from our useless pursuits and allow the fruit of Christ's righteousness to be yielded in us. That's our encouragement from this passage today, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that we need to be filled afresh. What a great reminder, God, that things that are good, that started out with a a good and a right purpose, such as the temple as a place of worship, can be corrupted can be turned towards ends that are not glorifying to you. And God, we don't go to a temple in Jerusalem to worship you. We get the privilege of worshiping you at all times. We worship in spirit and in truth. On Sunday mornings, we have a a special time of corporate worship. And we love the opportunity to come together We ask that you would continue to refine us here. Just as we ask that you would refine us in the place that you have placed us individually, whether it's in the home or in the workplace, in our marriages, in the way we interact with our children, for the way our children interact with each other. 
God, we want to be fruitful. We want to be full, Lord, so that when you come and inspect, you will find that there is fruitfulness in our lives, that you are being honored and glorified, and that when we come before you, whether by death or by your return, we'll have offerings to lay at your feet. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for what you're doing. Continue to refine us. That's our prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.